The Mays Mastercast is proud to represent Texas A&M University and Mays Business School. Mays Business School's vision is to advance the world's prosperity. This sounds like a lofty goal, and it is, but we know it is also realistic because our former students are doing exactly that, advancing the world's prosperity. Our former students are CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, VPs of strategy for Fortune 100 companies, and leaders in their various communities, nonprofits, and families. I'm Shannon Deer. I'm the Assistant Dean for Graduate Programs here at Mays Business School, here with your fabulous host, Ben Wiggins. Hey, Shannon, and welcome to Mays Mastercast. Did I skip that part? You did, but so what? Welcome to Mays Mastercast. (laughs) Welcome indeed. (laughs) And? It's a set of kind of dark gray blinds over there, but I assume... Behind them. It's a beautiful day in Aggieland. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Today we have Mike Alexander on the show, who is a dear friend and close colleague of mine, thinking about his importance to the world. Mike is an expert in teams and leadership and a process slash philosophy called Appreciative Inquiry, which he talks about on the show. He, for several years, was also my next door neighbor and put up with our beagle that howls very loudly. <laughs> he said he stopped hearing it, but anytime they had guests over, they're like, what is that noise? Our dog sounded a little like this. Kind of like a train that constantly <laughs> still does right. constantly in my life. This is why we had to move to 10 acres so that our dog would stop bothering Mike. No, he was a lovely neighbor who was very forgiving of our, our loud dog. But as far as his importance to Mays, Mike is the director of the professional MBA program. He came to Mays about seven years ago through a long history in media and has just been such a major contributor to Maze. He is always coming up with new and innovative ideas. He said it's in the show, not all of his ideas are unique. Mm -hmm. I have a friend who says no ideas are unique. It's just the people who can (laughs) execute those ideas and kind of synthesize those ideas. And Mike talks about that. So he's brought a lot of great tools to Maze Business School, including appreciative inquiry. We opened the show with a personal histories exercise that he's brought to the show through his love of Lencioni, and a lot of the research that Lencioni has done and writing that he's done around teams. So Mike brings a lot of valuable insights in the episode and in in my life in general. That was the five dysfunctions of a team? Yes, that's one of Lencioni's books, absolutely, that Mike really loves. All right, let's get into it. We welcome Mike Alexander to the show. Thanks for joining us, Mike. I'm glad to be here. Let's jump right in with our icebreaker question. What is your favorite superpower? I have two because one is common flying. I have had a dream since I was 13 years old. I remember the first time I had the dream. I remember where the dream was set. It was set in reality in my parents' backyard, the house I grew up in. And I was flying. And I still have this, this flying dream, but it's not... Like zooming around flying, it's more of a floating. So bouncing up off the ground and floating and then those floats turn into long-term floats above things. So I still love that. So that's, if, if I think if I could have one, that would be it. But that one's so simple that um, my other one is probably something John Krychek would call presence. But it's a, it's a nostalgic view of presence. It's, I wish I had the ability throughout my lifetime, and I, I wish others did too, 
to recognize those important moments in their life while the moment is happening. Yeah. So, so if, if I could have recognized that moment so that today my memory of that moment would be better. So I don't want to go back in time. I don't want to go back and revisit the moment. I want to have better memory of some of those key moments in my life. This is probably nostalgic. I lost my dad about a year and a half ago. My father-in-law passed away just a few weeks ago. So that's probably some nostalgia around wanting to remember some time with them better. Hmm. So, and I don't know what to call that other than some nostalgic view of presence in the moment for better memory. That's the superpower I'd really like to have. Are all of these moments, is it clear immediately afterwards or do some of oh, the moments no. not become clear? Like you mentioned losing. Yeah. So I was, uh, uh, to you. we were talking about this last week and the moment that sticks out that I wish I had a better memory of Graspa. was I was mm, 13, 14, 15 years old and walking in the dad with, uh, walking in the woods with my dad. Yeah. And that's all sort of cobbled together now as a general memory, but I'm sure there were very specific moments about that that I would like to be able to remember today. And then to answer your question, I'm sure there are some of those moments in my lifetime that I don't to this day know the value of them. So to have and some we'll inventory later. Yeah. Yeah. I do think we get better at that as we get older, yeah. um, becoming a recent grandparent recently becoming a grandparent has probably changed some of the ability to slow down and see those moments. But from my earlier days, especially with generations who have gone to be able to hold on to those memories would be a really cool thing to have and a thing to be able to gift others. Right. By the way, I told my brother, David Wiggins, friend of the show and our mutual friend, Justin Kling, that you were guesting today. And since iPhones are now too smart for anyone's good, it linked them both to Mike Alexander, the bassist for the British band Evile, who is unfortunately no longer with us. I assured David that you are not a recently deceased thrash metal bassist. So I'd like to pat myself on the back for that. But, but if but if I were recently deceased, if someone used the phrase thrash metal bassist in referring to me, that'd be pretty cool. It would be pretty cool. Yeah. I don't yeah. play bass. No, I, I had the hair. That was about it. That's all I had. I that. want, I want to know about this. When did you have the hair? Oh, gee. Um, <laughs> all through undergraduate and for several years after it was some act of youthful rebellion, going to a very small private liberal arts school and having hair and earrings. Okay. Yeah. And, and plus, you know, worked in theater and radio and it was somewhat required, at least in my head. Right. Yeah. So I'm going to steal something from you for our next set of questions. So you're just to talk briefly about what you do. You've brought quite a few tools to Maze as the leader of the professional MBA program. And I want to start with a tool you use to help members of a team get to know each other, the Mm -hmm. personal histories Mm -hmm. exercise. Mm -hmm. These are similar to our rapid fire questions at the end of the episode in that you answer them fairly briefly and they pack a punch. So let's start with the first one. Where'd you grow up? Just outside Longview, Texas, small town in East Texas. How many kids were in your family? There were and still are two of us, me and a little sister. Okay. What was your first job? Uh, My first job was working for Uncle James. I was probably 11, 12 years old. He owned some apartments in town, and I helped him mow and flip apartments and paint and do that sort of stuff in the summer. Probably, yeah, 11, 12 years old. I was Uncle James' helper. Okay. What was your greatest challenge as a child? So when I was third, fourth grade, I had a pretty bad stutter. And that, at that time, 
in our educational system that led to some branding. I was I was earmarked. I was put over there. And I had a uh, mother and a fourth grade teacher who vehemently disagreed with that. And so through a process of, I don't know, a year, year and a half, I was removed from that brand. So basically, I was considered challenged in some way because I had a stutter. And so I had to overcome that. Yeah, so that was the greatest challenge was being stuck in a bucket of folks that either I didn't fit with or that we disagreed with or that didn't fit me because of some externality. I'm glad that worked out because shooting straight, you're one of the smartest people I know. And I wonder how many people, maybe people from lower income families, like end up in that bucket long term. I don't know. Maybe maybe this conjecture is a dead end, but uh, it's unfortunate that that sort of thing has to happen. Yeah, it's hard to know. And it, and it gives you some perspective. Thank you. I'm, I don't think I'm all that smart. I think I just work hard. And I think it goes back to that as I literally had to go to speech therapy to overcome that, which then is sort of a beautiful irony that then for a part of my life, I actually used my voice in my speech to make a living. I don't know how that has probably affected a lot of other folks, but it does give you a window into that possibility of those negative outcomes. Mm. Okay, so when we do these personal history exercises, we're often doing them for team building. Mm -hmm. And just for our little team of two, as we work on this recording together, Let's team I'm going to ask you the same questions. Where'd you oh, grow go up? go for it. College Station. Okay, College Station, Texas. Where'd you go to high school? Consolidated. How many kids in your family? There were three. There are now five. We blended. And in the five, where are you? Oldest. Oh. Barely. Oh. Barely. By three months. Haha, <laughs> Amanda. Okay, that probably says a lot. <laughs> Figure that out later. First job. First job. I worked for ag engineering out in the sorghum fields hmm. west of town, and th that was brief. And then I worked at Cinemark Theaters where I saw Endgame on Saturday. Ooh, I worked at a movie theater when I was 17, 18. Nice. That's same, that. So that's the, see that? that's the purpose of this, is uh -huh. we find these things that are common. We, we see people as human, as members of families, as having weird first jobs. Challenge as a child. What was your challenge as a child? The collapse of my parents' marriage. Not just the divorce. The divorce was tough, but through the 90s, my parents' marriage fell apart and ended in divorce. Um, and that whole evolution for several years was terribly difficult. Hmm. So for people that you work with, people that are around you a lot, that may manifest in certain behaviors. Well, I'm sure it does. And them understanding where those behaviors come from may help them value those behaviors more. Mm -hmm. It may help them be less annoyed at behaviors they don't value. Right. So, again, part of the purpose of this is right out of five dysfunctions of a team. Patrick Lencioni, personal histories exercise. That's the point. Just get to know down. each other. Five, five dysfunctions, dysfunctions of, a of a team. Yeah. It's one of the books I just love and use a lot. There were two really good things that came out of the end of my parents' marriage. The first one was they're both happily remarried now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And as much as I appreciate the fact that they got together in the first place, for obvious reasons, <laughs> I, I do think that they're both in better matches now. I, I really appreciate both of my step-parents. Shouts to Veronica Wiggins and Mark Painter. I appreciate you both. Love you both. And I, I think the families make more sense now. And I really appreciate my step-siblings, and it's just, I get two families now. It wasn't great at the time, but now it's really turned into a blessing. The other thing that's come out of it is I have a really, really, because we went, all of the family went through extensive therapy as a result of this. And so I have a really 
pretty, for a lay person, I have a pretty good understanding of mm. the therapeutic process and from a couple of different perspectives, because my dad, as he will tell you, if you ask, and sometimes unprompted, is a recovering alcoholic, has been sober for 26 years now, I believe. And so his enactment of the 12 steps has really has really helped me in learning how to deal with emotionally difficult things. So that that explanation that you just gave, uh, being willing to do that, mm-hmm. uh, imagine that around a newly forming team, five, six, seven people, people trying to lead some unit or some organization, and they have those kinds of conversations. That's the value of things like that simple little tool, personal histories exercise, get hmm. to know each other, get to know each other as humans, to be more forgiving of of people based on their past, just to have a greater understanding of those people that you spend eight or nine hours a day with that we often really let under our skin for silly reasons. Right. And hearing that explanation and and then you hearing those kinds of things from me and and we've done this here. We've done this several times here in the MBA programs to get to know each other, to be better, to be more effective, to be better team members, to create a better product, to beat the competition, to create more value in the market just by getting to know this about your family. I want to tie that back to how you and I first met, which was during my peer 180 review after Mm -hmm. the first semester of the full-time MBA program, you and I and Tan Nguyen, shouts to Tan, great guy, we sat in a room and talked about what our teams, our MBA teams had said about Mm -hmm. us. And the biggest takeaway that you gave me as a, as a person and as a leader in the MBA program was be careful about individualizing too soon Mm. because I'm one of the things that I have come out of my childhood into adulthood with is I tend to tailor my approach to team building to the person, but to some people that feels like I'm not treating others equally. And you said, beware of that. Hmm. And, and so I wonder if the effect of doing something like this, I don't know, finding common ground to me is always valuable. I'm trying to tie all this well, together. Well, there's value in finding common ground. And then there's certainly value in, in understanding uncommon ground. Mm, so mm-hmm, understanding mm-hmm. where people come from. You know, the, the classic example in Patrick Lincioni's book, Five Dysfunctions. So right. it's a, it's a fable. It's a fable. So it's just written as a story. But there is a character in the book who is the CFO of an organization, and she is so cost conscious, uh, nearly a penny pincher, that she's an, in a startup, in a startup, that oh. she's annoying the people around her. But then when people understand that she grew up with in a family that was poor, Dad had a hard time holding down a job, just never had a lot of money. And that makes her worry about money. Mm-hmm. When when the rest of the team understood that, then they could appreciate why she is how she is, how her outlook manifests. And then they could actually sort of do some forgiving and appreciate it. You know, if we're going to have a conservative member of the team, we'd, we'd rather it be you, the CFO. So good. And is it OK if sometimes we tell you to park that? And of course, in the book, she says, yeah, you can tell me when to park it, but you need to know where it's coming from for me. Right. So that's part of the value is finding the uncommon ground and learning how to find some value in it. Some, something that you appreciate that then can turn into some bit of operation. So you're going to do something different than I'm going to do. You're going to bring a different view or you're going to have a, an ability or a viewpoint different than me. And appreciating that for the output, for the purpose, for the um 
the product or the service that you're building to put the best of us together for the customer or whoever we're building it for. That's mm. why you do it. And sometimes those things can show up in simple little questions like, well, what was your first job? And you never know where those are going to go. And, you know, you can add to this whole process. You can add things like uh, Myers-Briggs or the Berkman or Strength. So you can get into personality profiling. And that can certainly add depth to our knowledge of each other and to starting the, the process of building trust, building trust on a team. But if you want to start simple, where'd you grow up? <laughs> I feel like I'd like to ask these questions of Thanos, the Mad Titan. Where'd you grow up? What was your first job? How many, uh, how many kids were in your family? If only so, you know, I could hear him talk in the Thanos voice. I enjoy the Thanos voice a lot. Well, you know, to, to, to that point, and maybe we'll get to this, but I'm actually relatively introverted. And so put me in a social situation, put me at a party where I feel some some need to network or to talk to people. Mm. Same dadgum questions. Hey, where'd you grow up? Huh. Tell me about your childhood. I mean, just typically great conversations that typically will get a little a little deeper than the surface of what do you do for a living and what brought you here today. And not everybody always responds perfectly, but uh, I find them to be perfectly easy, sometimes very beneficial questions to ask just to get to know people. Now we want to know some more details about your professional life. You were somehow both a valedictorian and a salutatorian in your undergraduate work. Then fresh out of college, you became a radio personality. Yeah, I actually did. I was a DJ okay. for about three years. I, if I remember correctly, it was probably my last year or two of undergrad and then a year or two after. Mm -hmm. So like weekend fill-in DJ in addition to my day job. So yes, I was a DJ. Okay. I'm not going to tell you about the valedictorian salutatorian thing. Why not? Oh, no. Uh, <laughs> I had enough hours to graduate and I, to, to get two degrees and I didn't know it. Oh. So I earned a degree and then found out that I actually had enough hours to get a second degree. All I had to do was apply. Okay. And so I graduated again three months later. Yeah. And somebody had a better GPA than me that time. Oh. That's all. What do you think would surprise people the most about the way radio worked in the early 90s? <laughs> I don't know if it would be a, a surprise, but um, the biggest surprise to me was how dreadfully boring it was. Oh. And so it's, I mean, it literally picture doing this with no one sitting in the other chair. That's what it was. And I just, it was, uh, the great value to that was I literally thought that's what I wanted to do for a living. I changed my major so that I could become a radio personality. That's what I wanted to do. And best case, it, you know, helped me make the rent. It was really best case. It was just so tedious and boring. And I either need to be around people or I need to be by myself. And that was like a straddling position where I was by myself and very strangely around thousands of people that I never could see. And I didn't like it at all. Hmm. So boring. Yeah. It was this with no one on the other side of the table. You're sort of pontificating by default all the time. Yeah. And, and I'll tell you the difference would be because I was a fill in, you know, a weekend guy, there was no co-host. There was no show. So I think the difference would be when I listen to especially morning talk radio where there's two or three personalities working together, have a shared history. Mm -hmm. That would probably be a lot more fun. At, at the same time I was a DJ, I was also directing morning television news. Now, that was anything but boring. That was 
a complete mess every day. So you never knew what you were walking into. The news always changed. I was in charge of the production. So I was making sure that the product we put on the air was what the guy that wrote the news and the people who performed the news, making sure it was what they intended. And it was something different every day. It moved at a pace that I could barely keep up with, which was what made me not all that great at it, mm-hmm. is it moved at a tremendous pace and was exhaustingly exciting at 4.30 in the morning. So exhaustingly exciting in a good way? Was this, did you love the work, net, did you love the work or did you not? Loved making television. And that could be done not live. Right. Or live. So I loved making television back then. Making it live at that time in my career was really hard for me. So that was the exhaustingly exciting part. Right. right. Yeah. Because it was it was actually probably a step above my skill level, what I was doing. Directing morning news, being in charge of that function, that operation, and essentially for 30 minutes right. performing. Performing right. for 30 minutes. And that's all the behind the scenes stuff that you don't see. Like when you watch the local news and you see those three or four people up there, you know, there's an army behind them. And someone is is directing that army that's right. behind them. And it is typically extremely fast thinking people. Of course. And well, I am not extremely fast thinking. See that, so that's what me. was struggle to me. It surprises me to hear you say that because if, if you were to ask me, so I mentioned earlier that you're one of the smarter people that I've met. And if you were to say, what is most striking about Mike Alexander's intelligence? And I'm not saying this to inflate your ego. It's just an observation is how fast you seem to process things. So explain this to me. Yeah, I, I, I think I work around a lot of people including that one sitting right over there, Dr. Shannon Deer, who yes. process. Shouts to Shannon. Just uh, Dr. Mahajan, Mark Antonio. These folks all process so much faster than I do. Mm-hmm. I think I think what I have that maybe, that maybe represents as processing is I will collect a lot of ideas and thoughts in the background. And so then I'm able to apply them relatively quickly, but they're not unique new thought. It maybe is, I've got uh, a standard set of ingredients and mm-hmm. I'll just apply them to you. Hmm. So they're relatively limited. So I got a pretty small drawer of stuff I'm pulling from. Right. And so so maybe it represents as quick. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's because I've had to collect for a number of years. You talked earlier about how radio in the 90s was... <laughs> striking because of how boring it was for me for me right yeah, for me it was boring for me yeah. to do that particular job yeah i think anybody would think that's a fair statement so now are djs such as they are are they playing on their phones while songs play like i think how we deal with boredom and the fact that we don't have to deal nearly so much with boredom anymore because we have this thing in our pocket that can alleviate boredom pretty much any time you have to sit around and wait for something. The only time you can't use it is if you're sitting in an MBA class because then the program director will uh, <laughs> will get mad at you. <laughs> um, the big question here is the fact that we don't have to deal with boredom really nearly so much anymore. It still happens here and there, but is that a blessing or a curse? I would say we have to be careful, careful, careful that it doesn't become a curse. Mm-hmm. Um, break it down to its sort of least common denominator. What are we doing with our time and our brain? Mm-hmm. So how are we filling those empty spaces and what value does it create for us? Because sure. if you spend an hour and 15 minutes 
watching cat videos or searching for the coolest convertible that you might want to buy someday. <laughs> what have you just done with your time? And then the next least common denominator is then what does that do in relationship? My wife and I just spent a weekend at a bed and breakfast uh, out of town, just her birthday present to me. And I think we had the TV on for 20 minutes. So that was wonderful to not have that thing bothering us. We didn't. There were times during the day where we just you know, left the phones in the room and went out and enjoyed sitting by a creek and being together. And it was really easy to get pulled back into that phone. And so what we I think we have to be very careful for it not to be a creeping little curse, stealing our time and stealing time out of relationship. Hmm. From your work in TV, you were paying your dues in both theater and television. Mm -hmm. You listed that you helped build sets, operated lighting and sound for productions, as well as editing commercials. And then, as we discussed earlier, directing the morning news. Tell us a little more about all that. So I spent the first three or four or five years of my career doing most everything behind the scenes that you can think of. Mm -hmm. Probably radio DJ was was the exception, although. I saw that as a very behind the scenes job, but uh, assistant technical director at a performing arts theater. So running sound, setting up lights, building stages, being there for all the rehearsals, uh, doing all the behind the scenes work. Same thing in the television industry. Started off running a studio camera and then technical directing and then directing and then editing television commercials, but all behind the scenes. And that's where I belonged back then. And it's where I thought I belonged. Mm hmm. And then probably 96 or 97, yeah. and I graduated undergrad in 90. So six, seven years into the career, a very insightful boss said to me, hey, you've always been behind the scenes. You want to try sales? And I said, uh, no, <laughs> not at all. And she said, no, really, I, I think you should try this. We have an opening. It's low risk. Just try it. And she told me why I should try it. And so that that year that I spent in sort of traditional outside sales for a cable television advertising company was a real turning point in my career. So everything up to then had been behind the scenes, pretty good at it, but honestly realized at some point that I had never had the confidence to be in front of the camera or working directly with the customer mm -hmm. and that it took someone else seeing a possibility. And that was a possibility that would have been good for me and frankly, good for her. If I had been successful in sales, that, that would have filled a hard to fill role. And then that actually set my entire career in media on a, on a completely different path for the next 15 or 18 years. It's so interesting how being on the content side of things, when I was in the entertainment business, we would always be a little bit jealous of distribution, mm -hmm. so to speak, because distribution always had all the power over us. They would have all the leverage. But what we didn't realize was distribution changes all the time. Yep. Content at some level never does. Somebody's got to create a good story. Right or a good sport, right? or there's nothing to distribute. Then your time at Suddenlink, and I'm always interested in that particular evolution because that's where you knew my friend, Justin Kling, mm -hmm. friend of the show, mm -hmm. who hasn't been on with us yet, but may at some point. Tell us about all of that. After I was in field sales for about a year, I was actually taken back into production. Okay. So I was taken back into, but, but now another turning point for my career, which was 
someone else saw something in me and said, we think you can manage. We think you could supervise a much larger production function. And so that's what brought me to College Station, Texas. So 1997 was offered. So we had a centralized production facility. So we're making television commercials for small towns all across Texas, Arkansas, Louisiana. And we're making those here in College Station. So a capital intense function, a lot of money goes into those back then. And so we had this centralized function with all these people that literally would drive out for a couple of days, make commercials, come back, and we would edit them all here. Uh, And I was brought here to manage that function and probably did that for about a year. And interestingly, I, I actually think it was my idea that we should sort of tear that function down and move all the resources out to the field. Hmm. So this is at a real turning point in technology where it no longer costs hundreds of thousands of dollars to set up an edit suite. We're not quite at the point of doing it on laptops yet back in in the 90s, but we've moved to buying much less expensive equipment. And I mean, frankly, what happened was when it was cheaper to build a production studio than it was to purchase a van, mm-hmm. then it's cheaper to put the assets on the edge out in the field and stop buying as many vans to drive people back and forth. Right. So we literally move all the assets out. And that was the idea that I take to the boss, our vice president at the time and said, I think we should do this and we should shut this function down here because it has such enormous inefficiency in it. And we don't need to buy this equipment anymore. Right. And his answer was great. Perfect. What are you going to do? Cause I was supervising the whole function and I just said, let's move the function out there. So now we have another turning point. It created an opportunity for me to do a function in the organization that was brand new, emerging. And they said, uh, okay, you seem like you could figure this thing out. So go figure out this new thing. So within a matter of a couple of years, I went from production to sales, to production management, to a completely new function in the cable business back then, that then I did for probably 10 or 12 years after that. So my guess from just from sitting here and thinking about how that would best function is you're coordinating with people out in the field and they're generating the content and just shipping it back to you electronically or how does that all? So in the new model that we went to, they actually went to work for a local sales manager out in the field. So I no longer had that staff. They were, I mean, I literally completely tore the, I tore the function down. It didn't exist anymore. Okay. So I was a production manager and then no longer was a production manager. Right. So I was actually given another department to go manage and got out of the production business. I see. So then what was that next department? Oh, man. So this is geeky TV stuff. The The next thing I did was I sold all of our unsold inventory. So we sold advertising inventory. Mm-hmm. So on CNN, there's X number of 30-second availabilities per hour that the local cable has to sell. Right. So there's national advertisers, but then the local advertisers can be sold so the car dealership, the tire company, the barbecue place, they get an ad. Right. We didn't sell all those ads. Right. So I sold all of our unsold ads. So is that like this, just the second layer of sales or uh, how, how does how does that work? You said you sold all the unsold There ones, were national but... advertisers who would buy those up at essentially pennies on the dollar. Right. Or back then what we were doing was we were partnering with those advertisers and we were taking a commission off of whatever they were selling. Oh. So we were essentially risking with them. It was almost no risk because the inventory was going to go unsold. Right. So we would sell it 
for a percentage of whatever they were selling or for a certain dollar out per lead. So they would they would be trying to sell something of greater value and they would pay us $4 every time their phone rang. Hmm. So they were paying us on performance. So mm-hmm. that business was often called pay for performance. And so we then started partnering with them. And over the years, what we learned to do was aggregate a lot of media and create a relatively unique package. And what we found, and this was a finding with a client, a client and I got together and we found something very unique in Suddenlink's footprint nationwide. The demographic that we could get into their homes was one, one and a half percent of the national footprint but it was almost exactly the same demographic. So if you looked at men, women, if you looked at race, if you looked at anything socioeconomic, if you, any demographic you looked at, we had almost an exact mirror on a much smaller footprint. So we became a national testing platform for advertising agencies. And so, so then we moved from making $4 every time their phone rings to starting to sell this advertising on a weekly basis so that they can test new products or they can test creative. So they may have uh, something they're selling and they have two different versions of the ad. One version is if you call within the next 15 minutes, you get a discount. And the other version is buy one, get one free. And they want to know which one of those versions plays better. So we advertise, we post those commercials out there for a week. We provide them a bunch of data on the back end so that they can compare demographics. And then they could run analytics to determine which one of their commercials they wanted to spend much more money promoting across the U.S. Mm. And we were the test platform for them. And that ran for, in in a version, it's still running today. There's just other people that are doing it. It sounds like there was a bunch of exciting stuff happening here. And... Up to this point, a lot of exciting things happening. What was your most exciting experience from those, any of those early working days that stands out today? The one moment that comes to mind is a result of my MBA. So uh, as I'm earning my MBA at Mays in the executive MBA program, my perspective is changing. So instead of trying to just meet the client in the moment where they are and provide something of value and move really fast and get off the phone and try to make a commission and try to make them happy. Transactional. Yeah. And it was it wasn't bad transactional. It had value on both ends. But what the MBA taught me was don't just talk to the buyer. Mm-hmm. See if the CEO is interested in having a much larger conversation. So we literally had a moment where we invited an organization, one of our bigger clients, to come to College Station. Oh. And we got in a boardroom and they sat on one side of the table and we sat on the other side of the table and we spent half a day just digging into each other's businesses. So creating trust. So we had a long relationship, but it didn't exist at a, so, you know, I get my boss in the room and his boss in the room and we really start digging into where are their pain points? What would they like to solve in the next five to 10 years? If they would open their books to us, we would start understanding where they were receiving revenues and where their profits were coming from, where were their greatest margins? What were the things that they were in the business of doing that they wish they could stop? And then they did the same for us. They would they just asked questions. And through several conversations like that, the advertising that we were selling started taking on whole new meaning. And the example was a client said to us, it's not just the ads, it's the data. If we could only find someone who could provide us the audience data on the back end. Now this is 0809. So back end audience data at that point is very rare. Sure. Only probably unless you're Facebook. Yeah. I mean it's it's only in the internet business. This doesn't exist 
it exists conceptually in TV. So through inferences is how it existed in oh, TV. Okay, okay. Not through things like set-top box data and actual eyeballs on a screen. And we have the ability to do some of that. And so when client, after four hours of talking in a room, when a client says, if we could just get the data, and I literally look over at a guy that's in the room at the time and said, Jason, could we give him the data? So of course we can give them the data. We could FTP it to them. We could have it to them overnight. We could just drop it out on this site. They could download it. In what format would you like the data? And so our business takes a whole new meaning. And this is what got us into that national footprint, uh, representative national footprint business. And so that moment came from sort of the confidence to say, let's just sit down and talk and discover potential and discover possibilities instead of be in a healthy transactional relationship. Instead of that is really get into a deeper value building relationship, understanding what do they need? Can we provide it? Holy mackerel. Yes, we can. Right. Right. I want to go back to the data thing for a second. It seems like in 2019, life as a consumer is a fight between you and the company who is giving you stuff and they want all of your data and you decide how much of it you are willing to part with in order to get the thing that is behind the next, it's the equivalent of a paywall. Mm -hmm. It's it's a data paywall. And they say, in order to do this, you have to give us your email and you can give them like a fake email or whatever, like a, like an extra email that you don't use. But then they want your location when you're using the app. Mm -hmm. And then they want your location when you're not using the app. And then they want access to your Facebook profile. And then they want access to your friends list. And, and you just have to decide, uh, how bad do I really want this thing? Is it worth whatever they're asking for at this point? So we have to make these really incremental decisions about how our data gets distributed. And for some people, I guess that's it's really grating. And they're like, I don't want anybody to have any of my data ever. And but but then they have to give up all this stuff. And and I think it's it's the evolutionary version of I don't want to talk to people who are trying to sell me something because I think the better version of that is to just learn how to deal with those conversations. And if someone is the best salespeople are not pushy, they're uh -huh. just asking you questions. It's sort of like the good waiter or waitress versus the bad one. The good one just says, would you like any dessert today? The bad one is like kind of pushes the dessert at you. And the good one is just helping you decide if you want to buy something good, or not. Good salespeople are simply trying to figure out your need yes, and whether their product or service can meet that need. Yes. And, and, and I'll back up just a few minutes. When you asked me, what was the moment? The moment was us uncovering a need that was so much deeper than any of us thought w we could solve together. So the process of really digging into needs and capabilities and finding something that was probably three or four or five layers deep through a four hour conversation with a group of C-suite folks. Right. That, that was the moment that I knew this MBA thing was working. Right. When you find something inside a really smart person's mind that they didn't even know was there. Yeah. Those are always cool. Moments. And it was just conversations that were based in trust that sort of had this assumption of maybe something of value could come out of it. And I, and I know I've been in those conversations where nothing of value came out of it in the moment mm. where we're just talking, we're just trying to figure things out. But then even if it's just the relationship that's improved, because so, so I was de facto in phone sales for a number of years. So I was selling this, this unsold inventory over the phone and your best, absolute best client interaction was when a client would call you and say, 
hey, I know you don't do so-and-so, mm-hmm. but I know you know people in the industry. Would you give me a recommendation? Yeah. So when people are trusting you enough to recommend some related product or related service, yeah. that's when you knew you were making it. When I came to A&M, that was the thing that I thought I was going to miss the most was those relationships with those 20 or 30 or 40 people around the country, clients, customers, who we had built that level of trust. We could dig into each other's business. We could just help each other. And I did miss that. I missed that for a number of years when I got here. And then it was replaced by something pretty remarkable. And that was the transformation of students. Hmm. The change that students go through by earning their MBA here, discovering who they are, transforming who they are. That's what sort of replaced those relationships that I had of relationships based on trust that has been replaced by watching our students grow and transform and become and be able to do those kind of things. That would be a fantastic segue. But before we get to that, what one one final question about the first part of your career. So of mm. all the professional lessons that you learned throughout that early evolution, which one was the most counterintuitive? What surprised you the most from 1990 until you started uh, serving as the program director? So I I mentioned to you earlier that I don't, I don't think I have a lot of original thought. Uh, I I think I collect a lot of thought. Sure. Um, I had a boss named Brent Skinner who had a lot of sayings And one of the sayings that he had that I just didn't understand for a long time. And then when I finally did understand it, it became that counterintuitive lesson. And then it was that simple saying, you got to sometimes you got to slow down to speed up. Sometimes you got to slow down to speed up. And I saw him as constantly moving, constantly active, pulling and pushing people forward all the time. So I didn't understand what did he mean? Slow down. And what does he mean? Slow down? Because I never saw him be (laughs) slow. slow Right. And then when he would repeat this, one of one of several mantras that he had when he repeated it over and over, I finally was able to see when he slowed down and how he would take a group of people and slow us down so that we could then make decisions, make a plan, mm-hmm. uh, create clarity. That sure. was something that he was really good at about creating clarity about where we were going and why. Yes. So that then all of our actions would sort of sort of funnel down so that we could then speed up to get there. So slow down to speed up took me a long time to understand. You mentioned that you came to College Station in 97? I believe that's correct. Was there anything in particular that inspired you to stay? And obviously you have a lot of things keeping you here now, but what's that uh, that story? I, I loved what I did and I loved the people that I worked with. It was a joy. There were a group of us that sort of came up there. A few of those are still there, but many of my best friends today were folks that started there in an individual contributor role, and they were either my boss, or I was their boss, or we were co-workers for some period of time. Because I I think I spent a total of 17 years there. And so those relationships within that organization, that kept me very cautious about looking to go other places and do other things. Even when the offers would come up, my, my standard was pretty high because of the joy that I had at work almost on a daily basis. And then in 1999, I met this girl by the water cooler and she has kept me here. So those two things have probably kept me here. One, the joy of the people I work with. And then two, uh, the girl I met by the water cooler who is now my wife. I'm going to cheat a little bit and I'm going to ask a question about your wife. How many kids were in her family? She is one of 12. 
There are 12 of them. They're uh, in the Bryan College Station area. They're pretty well known, the Condorla family. She's one of 12. My very old, tired joke is nine or 10 of them are pretty decent. Um, many of them are still here in town. Uh, a few have spread. One's in Oklahoma. The bishop is in Oklahoma and a sister is in Colorado. Uh-huh. But pretty much everybody else is within, well, everybody is within a day's driving distance. Right. The only Condorla I know is Chuck. Hi, Chuck. Number 12. Right. Yep. You said he has 12th child syndrome. He has 12th child syndrome. Yeah. You yep. have to look that one up. <laughs> They're, they're an absolutely amazing family of people who work their tails off and are amazingly giving. Just an amazingly giving family. Yeah. So growing up in a family of four, holidays today are not the same as when I was a kid. That's an understatement. There are numerous stories about my integration into that family and struggling with the fact that Thanksgiving is a five-day event. Oh. Yeah. As a kid growing up to me, Thanksgiving was, you know, like lunch and supper and Thanksgiving was over. Not in the Condorla family. I appreciate it, that you say supper. It, I like it, that. Well, when I was growing up, it was dinner and supper. There was no such thing as lunch. It was yeah. dinner and supper. So if my dad invited you for dinner, you better show up at noon right. or you weren't going to get to eat. During the last few years at Suddenlink, you enrolled in the MBA program here at Mays, completing it in 2010. Mm -hmm. What sparked the new chapter? Why the change? When I moved here in 1997, I wanted an MBA. I always wanted to be an Aggie. Oh. Always wanted to be an Aggie. Only looked at a couple of schools to go undergraduate. Church really pulled me to where I went, to Abilene Christian. Actually, I always knew that I would end up living in College Station. I always end up knew I would go I would go to graduate school here. As I got farther and further into my career, it got narrowed down to it was an MBA. So in about 1998, I physically came to this building asking about an MBA. And in 1998, the executive MBA had not started yet. Whoever I spoke with in 1998 must not have known that it was going to start because basically you can enter into the full-time program or you can keep your day job at Suddenlink. You can't do both. And so I was not interested. I loved what I did. Couldn't afford to stop. Wasn't interested in stopping and making a big career pivot. Right. I wanted to grow. And so I parked the MBA idea. And I think 10 years later, I saw an ad. And, oh, so they now have a way that you can do this executive MBA thing. So sure. I don't know, January of 2008, my wife literally kicked me in the rear and said, you've been talking about it for 10 years. Why don't you apply? Get, get. Yep. And I applied and came up here and interviewed. I actually interviewed in this very room. In this room, I interviewed for, and I'm just realizing that now. And then on May 29th, 2008, I got the letter that said you're in. And then graduated in May of 2010. Do you find that your memories of significant things that have happened in your life are clearer if they are more recent? I mean, it seems like that would be a sensible thing. I, so, so I don't know the answer to that. But So I'm going to answer a slightly different question. What I know is the experience that I had of not having the confidence that I would get in, not having the confidence that I could do it. I think that's an experience that a lot of our prospective students have is, hmm. is this self-doubt of, well, it's May's business school. It's an MBA. Eh, I really want to do it, but I won't even bother because I probably can't get in. Oh. And so that's, I literally sat on that fence for 10 years. I, I didn't think I could get in. Now I was also ignorant about the executive MBA program But then once I found out about the executive MBA program, the reason I wasn't applying was the assumption that my application would be denied. Hmm. And so the question I still want to ask our applicants is, what's the probability that you're going to get in if you don't apply? Zero. What's the probability that you're going to get in if you do apply? 
Well, mathematically, the answer is zero <laughs> or greater than zero. And right. So what you're betting on is the or greater than zero. But if you don't apply, that's not an option. Yeah. And so I don't know if the memory is more clear for me because it's more recent, but the memory is relevant because I think a lot of our prospective students probably have something like that going on. Huh. You miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Yeah, yeah. So you got to take it. Yeah. And, and, and around here, that just means start an application, turn it in, find out. Yes. Shortly after the MBA program, you joined Mays and have served as the director of the professional MBA program for a little over seven years. We thank you for that, obviously. Mm -hmm. What is most critical for a PMBA student to gain from the program? When you look at the surface of an MBA, there is a lot of knowledge and skill and, and you, you must gain those things as, as when you hang that thing on your wall, yes. there are some assumptions that people are going to make out about you. And, and you need to be able to meet those assumptions. You need to be able to have certain kinds of conversations about certain topics. You need to be able to read a balance sheet. You need to understand uh, how finance decisions are made and be part of making them. You need to know some basics, well, more than basics about statistics. You need to know a lot of things about human behavior. So on the surface, you've got to at least get those basic ingredients. I think you cannot walk away from maize. And I think this is what attracts a lot of people here without something that goes layers deeper, which is you've got to understand yourself. So our, our mantra, discover, transform, impact, the discovery is not only discovery of skills and knowledge and abilities and things that people expect of you, but the discovery is also about yourself and how you interact with the world and how you're perceived by the world and maybe how you want to change that and how you want to grow your influence. And then when we talk about transforming, we're talking about transforming yourself through that discovery of self so that then you can go have an impact. And the reality is, yep, you can have an impact by being really good at finance, but you can probably have a lot more impact by how you lead people, how you talk to people, how people see you. And so that that impact, that's what I think people can't. If they if they miss that while they're here, they've really missed something because the reality is all the skills we used to say you could get those out of the library. Now you can get them online. You can get those skills. Through the experience of the MBA, you're going to get something deeper, and it's the discovery of self. Right. And and the willingness, I think here, one of the most important things that we teach ourselves and help teach others and train ourselves to do is to understand when it's time to subvert the self. Yeah. And when it's time to say, this is not about me. This is about... For example, advancing the world's prosperity. So the beautiful transition that I like to see over two years is when, when students come in, what they're typically talking about is self, is right. is adding knowledge, adding skills, adding abilities. Um, maybe they're talking about growing their own confidence. But when they leave, several of our MBA programs have a final presentation. And the question is some version of who are you now? Hmm. You're different. You're changed. So what's the major thing you've learned or who are you? Reintroduce yourself. And in a number of those, those final presentations, what I hear is some version of, yeah, what I've discovered is it ain't about me. Mm. It is about my influence on others. And if I build them up, right. I will also be successful. But remember, it ain't actually about me and my success. It's about them and their success. Right. And I, I think that's beautiful. I think if you walk out of here knowing yourself and having a lot of people get through an MBA as an enormous amount of confidence as well. So mm -hmm. I can do this thing, whatever right. this thing is. And so, yay, 
but then can they then impart that on others and at the same time become lifelong learners? So discover self to empower others and be a lifelong learner so that you continue to keep up with the skills and keep up with how do you motivate and influence people. Right. And motivate and influence them to do this good thing and to hold sacred these values that that really bind together, not just everyone at Texas A&M, because Texas A&M is great, but it's really about and Mays, I think as well, is really about an idea and everyone who holds dear that idea of sacrifice and service and pressing forward a common good and helping those who didn't have the same privileges that we had. If you're about that, you are us and we are you, regardless of whether you went to the same business school or not. And there's something really cool about that. A lot of things have happened in this office. A guy that used to sit in this office for years and years, who mm. who you've interviewed for this show, uh, Dr. Mike Kinney, That guy could boil things down to their simplest elements. And the way he boiled down what you just said, what makes this place different, uh, he boiled it down to care and collaboration. Mm. And that was it. And Mm -hmm. that that was his simple, uh, clear, we care about each other. We care about what we care about. We care about it so deeply that we will sacrifice. And we're going to do it together, whatever it is. He talked about that as what makes this place unique. But I think also as the people leave here, then that's what they take to their place mm-hmm. to make it unique. They have a greater ability, a greater willingness to show their care right. and then to collaborate with others to share a value out there. Now, that may be different than our value. It's probably really closely related, but go take that thing that we've planted here and go make it also happen out there so that whatever you're doing out there has more meaning than just some transactional thing. You also teach leadership and communication at Mays. You've been praised for your leadership communication skills and, quote, challenging the status quo. That's a quote from uh, Kyle Salem in 2010, I believe. With these qualities in mind, what do you think makes you different as a lecturer and presenter? You talked a little bit earlier about pulling stuff from different compartments and so forth. Do you do that in speaking as well, or is there something else that sets you apart? When I'm planning what I want the student to get, and then I start thinking about how, often multiple streams come together. And so I don't think this is completely unique. I I look at uh, John Krychek and think, so his definition of presenting Mm -hmm. equals presence. Mm -hmm. So he will move you from not only being a good public speaker to things like 360 so that you can understand about how people see you. Uh, I think I do that. and And I learned a lot of that from him. He pulls things that are of interest to him in the world. And then I do the same. They're just different things of interest. So I can't help. But when we are learning about communication to also bring some stuff called appreciative inquiry into communication, which wasn't originally set up to be a communication tool, it was set up to be a change management tool. But I've kind of figured out some ways to shove those things together. So do I think it makes me unique to combine ideas and to combine activities No, I don't think it makes me unique, but I think it actually comes from the fact. So I don't have a Ph.D. in a thing. I don't have that area of expertise that's really specific and narrow. And I don't mean narrow in a bad way. I mean, narrow in a powerful way. I don't have that. And so what I do have is 20 plus years of experience working 
some tools and some things I learned there. Mm-hmm. I have an MBA who there were some absolutely fantastic professors who gave me some stuff there. And then what the MBA did for me was to make me into a lifelong learner. So I've learned some new stuff. And then I bring that together. Mm-hmm. I don't think that is unique. I think what I bring might be unique. The bringing it together is not unique. Mm-hmm. What I bring might be a unique combination. Sure. No, that makes sense. And and anytime you hear someone like draw two things together, so I, I work fairly closely with my dad and Steve Wiggins. He's a professor of economics here. And he has that skill you're talking about where he can find something here and then reach his arm out, grab something over there and then brings those two things together. And you just say, I, I don't know how you tied all of that together, well, but it's I, so fun to watch. And I don't even know if that, I don't know how unique that is, but I'll tell you, I, I find it just fun as heck. So that's probably, it's the energy that I get from doing it that I want to give off to others. And it's not that they need to take those exact same ideas and combine them. Sometimes they don't even know I'm using the other idea. I'll just use it as a tool. Mm-hmm. But if people find fun, yeah. if people find energy pulling ideas together, and if I can be an example of that, great. If they get their energy from a very deep, narrow, beautiful, deep study of a certain thing and then teaching that, that has enormous value as well, especially in a place like an MBA program where we expect you to get really deep in a number of subjects. Right. I'm going to shift gears slightly. You've also been regarded as an expert of appreciative inquiry. What is appreciative inquiry? Appreciative inquiry started off as a change management methodology. So by definition, it is the study of what gives life to human systems. The study of what gives life to human systems when they are at their best. So it actually started off as a research methodology by a PhD student at Case Western Reserve, mm-hmm. David Cooper Ryder. David Cooper Ryder. He documented a set of principles that appreciative inquiry sits on top of, and it's things like the simultaneity principle and the poetic principle, and the there's eight of them. So he, he builds a set of principles around appreciating. So when I was learning on my MBA, one of the things I learned was if you don't know what a phrase means, just break down the individual words. So appreciative inquiry, we're going to appreciate, we're going to look at something and we're going to study it. We're going to study it and we're going to study the best of, and then the other definition of appreciate in the hopes that, so that what we're studying will grow. So we're going to, we're going to allow it to appreciate. Ah, So we're going to study an asset or a set of relationships, some strengths within an organization. We're going to study the best of so that the best of will grow. And then we're going to do that through inquiry and inquiry, literally asking questions, but asking questions in dialogue often started in one-on-one dialogue. And it's the who that's in the inquiry that matters. So it's not just the CEO and the CFO and the strategic planner, right? It's everybody in the organization. So that's another one of the principles. It's whole system change. So it's an enormously inclusive process. It's not enormously inclusive. It is inclusive. It is probably the most inclusive strategic planning or planning process because every stakeholder or representatives from every stakeholder group is represented in the inquiry that then leads to the appreciation. So. We're going to appreciate. We're going to do that through dialogue and asking questions, the right questions. We're going to do that with the whole system. So appreciative inquiry for strategic planning is not seven people sitting in a room 
monthly meetings that produce a big white binder that goes on a shelf. It is big group meetings. It is long periods of one-on-one conversations that are structured so that the strategic plan comes from the organization. So whole system, appreciate inquire, and then it has a sense of improv. So there's a set of processes, but those processes must be adapted for the organization at that time. So that's what appreciative inquiry is in concept. Its purpose, its original purpose was change management. When it started getting applied in the world outside of academia, it was about change management. It was helping organizations, a process that they could go through to envision their powerfully positive future. So go through a set of processes to make plans for your future. That's sort of its biggest, most ambitious use. Next layer down, it's a, it's a, it's a method for asking questions. It's a method to help people see and appreciate what is. So it's an antithesis to problem solving. So problem solving, which is enormously valuable, problem solving came out of the mechanical revolution. So problem solving started on an assembly line. Mm -hmm. So a system is broken. Let's figure out what the problem is. What are the criteria for success? What are the options? And let's deploy one. Typical problem solving. Appreciative inquiry is the antithesis because it's, it's, applied to human systems. So if you apply problem solving to a human system, somewhere in the process of solving the problem in a human system, de facto, a human is the problem. And what happens is that will suck all the energy out of the problem solving. So if we are uh, an airline and we're trying to determine what the heck is going wrong with baggage and baggage isn't getting to the final destination, so if the problem is baggage isn't arriving, yes. somewhere in that process, humans are going to probably end up being blamed. Either they're doing it wrong or they wrote something wrong or they wrote the code wrong. Things aren't working. And as soon as that starts happening, the human system starts cratering. We start losing energy because if I'm now to blame, I'm probably going to start throwing up roadblocks. I'm going to blame others. I'm going to get really defensive in, in, in an organization. Right. So, so traditional problem solving applied to a human system has some cost. Appreciative okay. inquiry eliminates that cost. Appreciative inquiry from the very beginning starts changing the language. So it's not the problem of baggage not arriving on time. We have to change the question. So it is, for example, then the it is the opportunity to help more baggage arrive on time. What or? creates a delightful arrival experience? Okay, and then and then that's what we study. Right. So we study what creates a delightful arrival experience. Right. And so now in that study, probably if whoever you assume were the problem people in the right. previous definition, those folks are much more engaged. Right. So if we're just creating delightful arrival experience, there's nobody to blame. So right. we're no longer problem solving. We have done, and it's commonly called the flip. Just take the problem and turn it on its head and ask, what do we want more of? Right. So so that's just one little example of the methodology of appreciation is that you take what is the problem and turn it into what's called the affirmative topic choice. So there's an example. Instead of why the heck is baggage handling going wrong? Why can't we get bags to final destination? Turn it to what creates a delightful arrival experience. And there is a lifetime, I would assume. I don't know. I'm four or five years into it. And every time I have an opportunity to use appreciative inquiry, I'd learn more and more and more. So I'm going to finish answering your question. What is it? A change management method. Next layer down, it's a method for asking questions. And then at some point, 
if you live it and use it and do it often enough, it can become, I don't want to overstate it, but like a philosophy for living. So it can be, it involves the way I coach people now. I would rather not problem solve with folks that I'm coaching. I would rather find what is working and focus on that and help them accentuate that. Right. And then the question always becomes, yeah, but what about the problem? Well, the reality is if we focus on the asset or the thing that is good, we will de facto end up solving the problem, if you want to use that language, or we will make that problem completely insignificant. Hmm. So Peter Drucker said the job of leadership is to align a system's strengths to make its weaknesses irrelevant. That's Hmm. not a perfect quote, but that's essentially what appreciative inquiry does is it aligns the strengths to make the system's weaknesses irrelevant. Hmm. So if you were to boil it down to two to two nuggets, it I what I got from that was emphasis on positivity and a collaborative process that involves everyone. Yes. When I went and studied with Cooper Ryder, appreciate, mm-hmm. inquire. So that's that's the inclusive side. Right. But then he would say there was a third really fundamental required element that he didn't get in the name, and that's whole. So there's a wholeness. The whole system is involved. So right. when we did it here at Mays. We did it here at Mays. We didn't just include the executive committee in the dean's office. The dean included the executive committee and faculty and department heads and staff and all levels of staff and donors and representatives of student groups. So look at all your stakeholders and involve them. And that's the that's the third important element is the whole system needs to be involved. Mm-hmm. So that's the big use of appreciative inquiry. When I first got into it, I don't work in change management. That's not fundamentally what I do. I don't work in strategic planning. I work in planning events or trying to make our curriculum better. And so I started off with the what I'll call the small ball use. Mm-hmm. So, so the day-to-day use or use the methodology in a meeting instead of us just going into a meeting and, and winging a certain conversation. So I, I started off at the, I'm a mid-level manager who has some influence and I would like my influence to be better more highly regarded, more effective, and fundamentally more positive because me, just like most other people I know, can get really sucked into the griping. And I hmm. didn't want to do that here. I did not want to get sucked into the griping. And, and, you know, of course we all still do. But I was actually looking for a method to prevent that in myself. And so a guy that used to work here mentioned appreciative inquiry to me twice, did some reading, went to some training, and now I'm sort of using it to help organizations strategically plan, which is bizarre to me. Love that. Let's move to some rapid fire. Cool. What do you consider your most valuable failure? That first TV job I had, I I quit. Three years into it, I was arrogant. I was uh, short-sighted and I quit that job when I was 24 or 25. I was impatient and, and, and my failure was that I quit because I got passed over for a, a promotion. Mm. And right after I quit, I found out the organization had a plan for me and I Mm. didn't know it. And I was just, I thought I was the only one who could do it. You know, I thought I was irreplaceable. And so the lessons from that uh, failure of quitting without talking to someone, of quitting in a a flurry of arrogance, quitting without knowing what the company's plan was, assuming the grass was greener without asking, that's taught me patience, taught me to slow down. It's taught me to see the value in others. It's also taught me the perspective of what maybe other 24 and 25 year olds are thinking. Hmm. What do you think is people's biggest misconception of you? So I don't know if there's a single big misconception, but there's a sort of a series of dichotomies. 
Hmm. I think I present as fairly outgoing and extroverted and willing to say things and ask questions at meetings. And the reality is somewhere I'm actually more introverted than extroverted. I need uh, time by myself to recharge. Hmm. So when I'm doing the things that people see me do, I'm giving off energy. And um, I used to define a great weekend as truck pulls into the driveway at 530 on Friday and pulls out at 730 on Monday. And that was when I was single and nobody came to the house. So literally an entire weekend by myself. I get that now in little spurts mm-hmm. here and there. So so that's one misconception. The other misconception is um, doing what we do for a living. We present as fairly professional. I'm still a country bumpkin. Get me home on the weekend and none of my T-shirts have sleeves. Uh, my wife won't let me to go to the store looking like that. Um, she tries to throw away my T-shirts that are older than our marriage. Um, <laughs> I will often dig them out of the rag bin. So there's a, a simplicity, uh, a simplicity to what gives me pleasure. And, and you put those together and, yep, I like to be by myself. I like to be in my yard. I like to be tinkering in the garage. And I'll do it as a East Texas country bumpkin. If you could have anyone as a mentor for one day, who would it be? If I could go back in time. <laughs> I would like to spend a day with either my dad and or my father-in-law, and I'd like to see them in their youth. I don't know that I would want them to mentor me. I would just like to know what they were like when they were, you know, 17 or 19 or when my dad was in the army in in Germany in his 20s before he got married to my mom. I'd like to spend a day just sort of observing Hmm. my dad and my father-in-law who have both passed away. But if I could have a mentor I used to work for a man named Bobby Wood, who has also passed away. Bobby Wood ran a church camp in the mountains that I used to work at. And that man was one of the most driven, hard, high expectations, fast moving, drove me into the ground physically at this camp that we worked at, but had unlimited amount of love and care for the people that he was pushing like that. Hmm. And I see so many parallels to that man in that time in my youth to frankly to what we now do for a living pushing on people and loving them at the same time and i would actually like to talk to him about why he did that how he did it sort of what he saw as the purpose i could make some pretty good assumptions about it and then i would like to continue to apply that to what we do here and what i'm going to continue to do in the future it's funny how the people who drive us the hardest well maybe it's not a coincidence at all but how those people often have a lasting impact on us. Hey, I'd love to say somebody like Leonardo da Vinci. That sounds really cool. But my list of mentors would be the people who have had influence on me and they have to a person been extremely hard driving people in mm. my life. Mm-hmm. Don Benoit, Lynn Cooper, Bobby Wood, Brent Skinner. Mm-hmm. And so, so not Leonardo da Vinci, real people that I knew that pushed me, mm-hmm. that forced me or created opportunity for me to grow. What is your fondest memory of Tamu? So, you know, I didn't do my undergraduate here, so I don't have some of those what I I would think would be sort of traditional experiences. My my fondest memory was a Sunday afternoon standing in my front yard by myself (laughs) about to quit the executive MBA program because I was dying trying to either do some homework or an exam. I was just cracking. I I couldn't keep up. I was physically and mentally exhausted. I didn't understand what I was doing. And I was just about to throw in the towel. And I called one of my teammates, Shaddy. And I just told him where I was. And he, you know, sort of, quote unquote, talked me off the ledge. You know, he's like, we've all been here before. 
you know you'll get through this. Can I give you a recommendation? Put the books down for an hour. Go do something else. Get out of your own head. And that support that he showed me and his view of me outside the me at the moment that was so helpful to me, that is my single fondest memory. And he doesn't even know about this. I should probably tell him. But him sort of saving me. Now, would I have actually quit? Probably not. But the care that he showed me in that moment, and I think that pro- that moment probably happens over and over and over in many different ways around here. So that that represents what this place is to me. And it was just a phone call to Shaddy. Great. We end each session with Good Bull, opportunity to recognize someone else for something good or great they have done. Anyone you would like to send some Good Bull. So I have done this job now for a little over seven years. And about two years ago, I realized I was one of the old ones around here, which shocked me. There are, Julie Orzabal is the person who's been around here since the Mayflower, the director of our executive MBA. <laughs> but I, I looked around one day and realized that most people were newer than me. Right. And so I had, I still felt very new to this organization. And yet, relative to a lot of my peers, I'd been here a while. And so the people I want to give good bull to are Jeff Jones and Deb Mann. Jeff Jones and Deb Mann, they work with me, one in Houston, one here, and they've been with me essentially since the beginning of my time here. Mm -hmm. And when I think about the good things we've done, I'm not sure it would have been possible. Or if it would have been possible, it wouldn't have come out in the same way if it hadn't been for the two of them working with me on the things that we've done. So the people I would like to give good bull to, Jeff Jones, facilities manager at City Center in Houston, and Deborah Mann, assistant director of the professional MBA program. Good bull indeed. Mike, thanks for your time. It's cool to be here. What a great discussion. Thanks for listening to the show. It's always such an honor to be at May's Business School and probably in higher education in general, just because we get to learn so much from our peers. And I have done a lot of learning and growing in the time that I've been in this position Mm -hmm. by using a lot of the tools that our students get to use. And it's, it's just fabulous. And Mike has been a big part of that for me. So going into our Mastercast top three takeaways, the first thing I wanted to talk about was... Mike talking about having a stutter as a child. That's something he's shared with us before because we've done the personal histories exercise several times as a leadership team here at Mays. But I think that's really interesting in thinking about how that might have shaped Mike. The other day, he said something twice and I said, whoa, he needed that for emphasis. And he does that sometimes. And he said, no, that's because of my stutter as a child. And I was like, well, I sound like a jerk. But <laughs> but understanding that part of him and then being able to go, oh, I would never have made that connection is something that not everybody might know about their coworker or might feel comfortable disclosing. And it was really cool to, to know those things about Mike. Right. And I think y'all did a really good job of talking about how not all children with learning differences or speech differences might have the opportunities that Mike had that might not have a mother or a teacher who would fight for them to understand the source of those differences and that it might not be intelligence. Right. I think we have made a ton of progress in 2019 in terms of looking past things like dyslexia and stutters to to see strengths in people, kind of like Mike talked about with organizations, to use strengths to the point that weaknesses become less relevant. 
I think we do a better job of looking through to kind of what's at the heart of a person's mind kind of a mixed metaphor there, but I am grateful to the people who were able to do that for him, even if we don't yet do it for everyone, because man, what a mind that guy has. Yeah, absolutely. I listened to Dak Shepard's podcast. I've talked about that on the show a little bit, but um, it's called Armchair Expert. And Dax is dyslexic. And as a child, he was in the classes for students with disabilities. Mm. And talked about how because of that he kind of always had a chip on his shoulder about wanting to seem like the smartest person in the room never wanting to feel stupid and you know and just and how eventually someone realized what was going on with him and that it wasn't an issue of intellect but an issue of a learning difference that needed to be resolved one of the things that my friend Josh Perryman taught me about dyslexia and we've we may have touched briefly on this on the show before is oftentimes people who are dyslexic are really incredible spatial thinkers. Mm -hmm. Like they have ways of sort of pivoting things in their minds, like within the space of a room, like to say it would be more efficient if you had the couch turned this way and then put the end table over there and then their mind, but they, they can't stop their mind from doing that. Mm -hmm. So then it does that with the letters of words and it's actually a great gift that you have to learn how to turn off mm -hmm. rather than something that you have to learn how to turn on. So thinking about dyslexia in that way was really, I wouldn't say it was transformational for me, but it could be transformational for some. Absolutely. I think Dax on his show talks about how from an evolutionary perspective, how we used to need people with dyslexia in, in a society, in a village, we needed people with ADD because it kept the village moving, mm. right? Instead of getting stagnant and still, it kept things moving forward. It kept you moving away from danger. Our society now is not as conducive to those things as it used to be. The need is different. And so how do we adapt to that? My sister, one of her sons is not ADHD, but he is very hyper and they are doing all kinds of cool things in school to help him, like chewing gum while he takes an exam or hmm. sitting on a exercise ball while he takes an exam so that he can bounce huh. because he just needs to move. He's He can focus on the exam. He can answer all the questions right, but he needs to be moving. I'm going to sit on an exercise ball while I eat dinner. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Maybe you should. I have, I have some colleagues that use them at work, huh. but more so for like core stability than for, I think, attention. But. At work, I have all the uh, energy siphoning stuff I need. I have a treadmill desk. Oh. And then when I'm not quite, when I'm, the work is a little too much for walking on the treadmill, uh -huh. I have a leaning chair. Yeah. So it's like, I have like four layers of stuff at work, but <laughs> you, can't always deploy all that in my personal life. Absolutely. Going to our second takeaway and kind of related, my best friend, was gifted and talented growing up. I was not. And we've had this revival of a conversation that has been, has gone throughout our childhood where a lot of her identity is around being really intelligent. And she's brilliant. She's absolutely just one of those brilliant people. And we were at an event and it, it caused a lot of discussion, but someone said, 
you know, they're just as mediocre as the rest of us or just as average as the rest of us. And she was like, oh, no, we are not average. We are above average intelligence. And I think what kind of my takeaway from that discussion was that what matters about intelligence as we get older changes a little bit. It's not just you know, did you take this test and are you gifted and talented, but how do you integrate and contribute to society? And Mike talked about how you, know, you said Mike's one of the most brilliant people you know. And Mike said, well, I'm not so brilliant, but I do have this skill that makes me look really smart, with, which is synthesizing information mm-hmm. and being able to process that back to people right. in a way that's effective. And I think we've talked about this on the show, too. I'm not the most intelligent person in the room, but I'm probably one of the fastest thinkers. And that's not the same. That's not the same as being smart, but it is maybe the thing that I can capitalize on that people go, oh, she's really smart. And I think Mike's done the same thing with, and I think Mike is really smart, but he's also capitalized on this thing that works in adulthood (laughs) to make you come across as smart. I place a premium on speed. And maybe that's not fair. Yeah. But in when, when I'm having a conversation with someone, right or wrong, and maybe wrong, I measure their intelligence by what does the tennis game feel like? Like mm-hmm. as we hit the ball back and forth, like what what insights is that person bringing to the table? And what what Mike is saying, I think, is effectively that he's kind of cheating. Like he has the same, you know, three tennis shots that he's going to use all the time and he's just going to combine them in slightly different ways that it feels like something different every time, but it's actually the same three things. And to me, maybe that is something that doesn't, age well, like as you get to know someone like that a little better, you're saying, oh, you're doing that thing again. But I, d- I don't know. I've I've had a few pretty long conversations with Mike and it, he's got enough combinations of stuff that yeah. I don't know, like it doesn't bother me. I mean, I spend most days with Mike at work and, and I think what he's saying there is more that he goes to the same tools, hmm. but puts in different content. Okay. So he just has some tools that work for him. Right in any situation because Mike has tons of depth and he's also a very good listener. And so I think that's where the synthesizing comes from, that he may not have the best idea in the room, but he's listened to all 50 ideas that have come out really fast. And at the end of the meeting, he's going to say, here's what I think we said. And he's going to boil that down into three things that we all can digest. And he's going to walk out looking like the smartest person in the room. (laughs) And that's a tool. The content changes every time. So it, it doesn't feel repetitive or disingenuous or anything like that. It just is that the tool is the same. Right. He catches the ball and says, all right, Right. I'm going to put that in this drawer. And then I close the drawer and open it. And here's what comes out. It's kind of like Kimmy Schmidt opening. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody can see this. Uh, (laughs) But like slamming that anyway. That is not our third takeaway. Our third takeaway is the imposter syndrome. And Mike talked a little bit about this. He didn't use those words. Those are the words I will attach to it of feeling like you don't belong somewhere. And I think Mm -hmm. that happens to a lot of people who are thinking about doing a degree program like an MBA or a PhD or whatever it is, it disproportionately happens to women, most research will say, where you feel like you just don't belong, you're not smart enough, you're not whatever. And it it probably is you're not 
whatever enough that carries through from your childhood. You know, for Mike, it was, I'm not smart enough to get accepted into an MBA program. And I'll try not to project on Mike of what that might have been about his childhood that brought him there. But there's those things that stay with us that were not enough X to do this. I, I would doubt that you felt that way. To me, it was just, I don't know what this program cares about. Mm. And it was a question of like, do I have the wrong kind of experience? Mm-hmm. Just speaking frankly, am I too old? Mm-hmm. Am Thanks I, a lot. It, well, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> just just, uh, just yeah. leveling with you. It was, what, what are they looking for? If there's this set of stuff that they're looking for, I feel good about my chances. And most of the time, one of the benefits of the privilege that I have grown up with is that most of the time I fit the mold. Like I, I fit what is being looked for to the point that... I remember the first time that I interviewed for a job and didn't get it. And that experience fell later in life for me than it does for most people. I, I won't say exactly when, but I remember getting the call and it was just this crushing thing of like, I don't know how to deal with this. Mm-hmm. And having what that experience, what feels like a failure earlier in life, I think is actually better for people because it's one of those things like, the measles that's much harder to deal mm-hmm. with as a, mm-hmm. is it measles or chicken, chicken pox, pox. <laughs> right so get the measles as a kid <laughs> for sure don't get the measles right no, no now you don't. have a vaccination for chicken pox they don't they don't even what kids today i like the phrase finding uncommon ground yes that that's actually what i'm going to hang on to because i love finding common ground but the finding uncommon ground is one where you can say i don't know what this person went through i haven't experienced anything like that but I see their humanity. I see the pain that came into doing this thing that I find so annoying that they're doing now. But now I know kind of where that came from and I can identify with it and it makes them three dimensional. And I don't, I don't want to get too philosophical about this. We've talked about it on the show before, before, but I think with social media, with the way that our, not just social media, but where the way that our media is digested for us, it's, easy to avoid uncommon ground with people now yes, and finding more opportunities for that. I think for me, this show has been that at times with, I don't necessarily agree with a guest or I don't necessarily disagree with a guest, but I think someone else might and how it opens up conversations period. It opens up conversations. And to me, that's what's so important. That's what I want in my life right now. I think I was joking the other day that this show has ruined me a little bit because I don't want any more superficial conversations in my life. I don't want to go to the party and have the small talk, small talk anymore because of the depth of conversations that we're having. And the fact that we can disagree and that is perfectly fine and we can get to know each other on a deeper level and those Mm -hmm. those are really beautiful things and i think that finding uncommon ground we were actually we're going to talk about a topic on the show sometime soon and you and i were talking before the show today and and we're like man we might we might agree on that we were like disappointed (laughs) that we might agree on it we won't don't worry folks but we're gonna disagree we are but i think that's interesting just that that desire to find uncommon ground yes sure so I think that's it for our takeaways. I think we snuck in a fourth one in there, but that's good. I liked it. We did. I cheated. No, no, I think it was important. And I'll kick it over to you for a quote. All right, let's close with a quote. So this is from Theodore Roosevelt, maybe the hardest man of the 20th century. I'm delighted to have you play football in this 
particular case. I believe in rough grown-up sports, but I do not believe in them if they degenerate into the sole end of anyone's existence. I don't want you to sacrifice standing well in your studies to any over-athleticism, and I need not tell you that character counts for a great deal more than either intellect or body in winning success in life. Athletic proficiency, or any one of a number of other skills, is a mighty good servant and like so many other good servants, a mighty bad master. Mm-hmm. This has been the Maze Mastercast. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening. We would like to thank both of our marketing and production specialists, Julie Faulkner and Megan Barsinski, for all of their hard work behind the scenes and making our lives so much easier. And of course, our fantastic hosts, Ben Wiggins and Shannon Deer. I'm your producer, Kyle Ackerman, saying thank you, and we'll talk to you soon.